Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I'm James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com, and we welcome you to another important episode of The New World Next Week. Of course, everything you need, audio, video, and all the sources cited are at NewWorldNextWeek.com. James, we'll get to the story that pretty much everyone in the world is chattering about as, as we speak in our second story. But first, let's get to one that is not getting very much coverage and one that's fascinating. Osama bin Laden's son-in-law's trial begins in New York City. We'll grab this from ABC. Osama bin Laden's son-in-law went on trial Wednesday, March 5th, in federal court in Manhattan, where jurors heard him portrayed as both a murderous mouthpiece for al-Qaeda and as a target of prosecution designed to play on the fears and resentments from 9-11. In opening statements, the prosecution referenced the 9-11 attack several times in his opening, even though our guy was not involved in the plot. His defense said, quote, this is not Osama bin Laden. This is Suleiman Abu Ghaith, a Muslim, an Arab from Kuwait, a husband, a father, an imam, a talker, an ideologue. Suleiman Abu Ghaith, age 48, a one-time imam at a Kuwaiti mosque, was brought to New York from Turkey last year. He pleaded not guilty, he has pleaded not guilty, to charges he conspired to kill Americans after the September 11th attacks. Born in Kuwait, he is married to Osama bin Laden's eldest daughter, Fatima. And James, this story goes on, and and it seems as though this is connected to not one, but two of the feared shoe bomber cases and and again his his lawyer his defense notes at the end of the day there's really no evidence there's the substitution for evidence with fright and alarm and james the related story i don't know if you want to comment before i get into the exclusive story from the washington times Actually, I do. Uh, let's just cover the Abu Ghaith side of this first, because, uh, well, <laughs> substitution of evidence for fright and alarm is pretty much the, uh, the, the, the hallmark of the war on terror. But it's a fascinating story for a lot of different reasons, one of which is just the way that he was eventually captured and apprehended, which um, a, a lot of the news is kind of alighting over that and saying just that he got arrested in Turkey and then sent to Jordan and then the U.S. But in, in fact, as Sibel and I covered, uh, Sibel Edmonds and I covered in our Gladio B series, I believe in part two of that series, we talked briefly about this at, at the time because uh, Abu Ghaith had just been arrested in Ankara in Turkey at a luxury hotel downtown Ankara, just a block or two away from, from the government offices. And uh, there he was. He gets, he gets arrested at that time because the U.S. government asked for that and then uh, immediately released because he had committed no crime in Turkey. And, uh, and then they decided to deport him to Kuwait. And on the way to Kuwait, he gets stopped in Jordan, which is one of the known CIA collaborators in the rendition program, and then taken to the U.S. So it was kind of a circuitous route. And once again, it shows that the Turkish government seems to be, well, having these people show up at their doorstep and then, uh, and then letting them go. So uh, what does that say about what this fictional war on terror is really about and who's really on what side? I guess the real question here is is then why is the U.S. trying to put him on trial now? And I, the only answer that I can think of is that his value as a uh, as a mouthpiece for the fictional Al-Qaeda boogeyman has slipped below his value as a, a propaganda piece for the war on terror by putting him on trial. Although it should be an interesting trial from what I understand. KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9-11, is expected to uh, have testimony admitted into this case. So it'll be very interesting to see how this turns out. But the charge is conspiracy to kill Americans 
Americans, and even the prosecutors admit he had no operational role in the fictional 9-11 Al-Qaeda narrative, etc., etc. So I have no idea what they're going to say about him. But anyway, it should be interesting to find out. James, the related to this story that we'll include is an exclusive from the Washington Times. FBI had human source in contact with Osama bin Laden since 1993. In a revelation missing from the official investigations of 9-11, the FBI placed a human source in direct contact with Osama bin Laden in 1993 and ascertained that the al-Qaeda leader was looking to finance terror attacks in the United States this according to court testimony in a little-noticed employment dispute case. This testimony, James, was given in 2010 to an essentially empty courtroom, so thus it escaped the notice from the media or terror specialists. The Washington Times was recently alerted to the existence of the testimony while working on a broader report about al-Qaeda's origins. Now, it remains to be seen, James, whether the conclusion the Washington Times will come to about al-Qaeda's origins is that, as you have noted and so many others have, that they don't exist. We'll, we'll have to wait on that one. But this is a huge story from the Washington Times and, and physically huge. Make sure when you go to this source, you click the view full article because it goes over at least five pages to get into this story and we'll also include a link to 911blogger.com that further gets into this story and breaks down all the other points where the U.S. and its allies had contact with bin Laden and the hijackers many, many times before 9-11. James, I would just say it seems like all of the chaos and and showbiz razzmatazz of 9-11 is now just sort of playing out and being wrapped up in courtrooms as if it were any other just sort of case between international bodies that are just sort of settling some loose ends. Uh, that's right. And of course, this also ties into the decision last December to uh, allow families to sue the Saudi government for potential um, involvement in 9-11, which is, again, it's an interesting thing that's been blocked for over a decade. And now all of the uh, the floodwall gates are being opened on that because apparently Saudi Arabia is in the crosshairs of the U.S. diplomatic community for whatever reason. So again, it is it is just a geopolitical power play that's playing out in the courts now. And uh, and that's the way that the, uh, the 9-11 ends, not with a bang, but a whimper in the courtroom, I guess. James, let's now get to the story that pretty much everyone is chattering about. It's been on the front page of, of Google News pretty much all day, tens of thousands of mentions. Everybody is talking about the story of the American anchor for Russia Today resigning on air over the invasion of Ukraine, Liz Wall, W-A-H-L, an American anchor of the Kremlin-funded Russia Today news network resigned on air Wednesday in protest over Russia's invasion of southern Ukraine, the second American reporter to publicly condemn the Russian government's actions on its own channel. Wall, who works in the media outlet's Washington, D.C. Bureau, worked, claimed she could no longer be, quote, part of a network funded by the Russian government that whitewashes the actions of Putin. I'm proud to be an American and believe in disseminating the truth, and that is why, after this newscast, I'm resigning, end quote. She was the second. The first, of course, was the much more well-known host of Breaking the Set, Abby Martin. She went off on corporate media propaganda during an interview, James, with Piers Morgan on CNN. While two RT anchors, I'm grabbing this for Mediaite. So again, I, as if we shouldn't have to say this, but linking does not equal endorsement. I, a lot of times we'll give you different links to sources that I don't necessarily salute, but 
are worthwhile in showing you the, the various angles. While two RT anchors spoke out against network editorial policy this week, one of them stayed at their jobs, and Abby Martin joined Piers Morgan on CNN about self-censorship, corporate media, and all of these things. James, it's fascinating also to note Piers Morgan's show has also been canceled and will be done in a few weeks. And this all really plays into who you get your news from, James. Yes, it certainly does in a spectacular fashion. Well, on the Liz Wall side of this story, if her on-air resignation was a kind of a cover letter for her job application to Fox News, then I will throw in a link to a Daily Beast article where she explains why she resigned that I think is the job application itself. And uh, for people who are interested in Liz Wall and her views, um, I, I think you can find them in that article where she's basically defending American imperialism and uh, and saying, oh, it's a, you know, we weren't allowed to report on these things, etc. Etc. And so I would not be surprised if she ends up working at some mainstream corporate uh, garbage outlet in the United States anyway. So um, I'm not really concerned about her. And I'll also throw in um, RT's response to Liz Wall's resignation, which I thought was actually a very good response. It, it puts it in a nutshell, I think, quite well, um, that if uh, there are genuine concerns about editorial policy, etc. There are professional ways to quit, and this is an, a, a self-evidently a, an attention-seeking way to quit. So I think that's uh, that's probably a good enough assessment of the Liz Wall situation. For Abby Martin, uh, uh, well, I mean, there, there's a lot to say there, an awful lot. And in fact, I'm probably tomorrow, uh, Friday, I'm going to be putting out a regular edition of my podcast talking about this subject and some of the subjects that it raises. Uh, I know I promised the Federal Reserve documentary, but we've been waiting 100 years for the truth about the Federal Reserve, so I'm sure we can wait a few more days. Uh, this is this ties into um, what's happening right now, the battle lines that are shaping up in the future possible World War III type scenario, and I think this is extremely important that we think about this very carefully because it really does go to the heart of what this all means, what what uh, what hypocrisy on inter, inter, international democracy, uh, international diplomacy means, how we navigate that, independence of journalism, etc. So um, it's exceptionally important for us to to take a, a stance on this. And uh, and so I have a lot to say about that, but we'll get into that more in the uh, podcast on CorbettReport.com tomorrow. Now, James, how does this in a way, though, to tie in? This is something you and I discussed in the, in the preparation for this episode 184 of The New World Next Week. We've talked about this, I think, time and time again, as, as, as segments on this show have, have discussed our sort of blind allegiance to anyone who says something that remotely resembles something we believe and they say it on television oh man russell brand is the he's the man matt damon oh gosh he's the man. what does it say when some of the folks that again are kind of swimming around in this stew are quote-unquote independent journalists but are also connected to the same billionaires who appear to be funding a lot of the shenanigans that go on well, that's another key piece of this puzzle. And for people who have been following it in great detail, you'll know that Glenn Greenwald came out to defend Abby Martin and her stance, despite the fact that he has also been in his own little uh, brouhaha with Pando.com about the funding of First Look and Piero Midiar and his role in funding the Ukrainian opposition, which uh, documents have surfaced on that. And he comes out to say, it doesn't matter. I don't know or care about this billionaire funder's uh, uh, investments because I have journalistic independence. 
And uh, funnily enough, people have dug up interviews that he was doing seven years ago, um, trying to take um, writers for uh, Politico to task for the fact that their funders were right wing ideologues. So they must they know who's writing their paychecks. And uh, that's all, that's on, uh, underneath everything that they do. And here he is defending a billionaire who's uh, also the founder of eBay and PayPal and uh, and uh, in bed with the NSA and supporting Ukrainian coups, etc. Um, it's just it's ridiculous. And there's uh, again, there's a lot more to say on that angle, but we'll just leave it there for now. The the only other one I'll sort of semi-related add on to that, James, is just to, to add on to our sort of celebrity worship culture. In case folks missed it recently, Ben Affleck and Seth Rogen testified before the U.S. Senate on Congo and Alzheimer's. So now, James, and, having and that, for people who don't know, Ben Affleck. CIA agent. And that was an excellent argument put together by Tom Secker at the FOSA conference last year. It's up on Tom Secker's uh, YouTube uh, right now. So I'll link to that in the show notes so people can watch it. An excellent presentation that makes a very convincing argument that Ben Affleck is CIA. And we could add, you know, in the discussion, whether it's the Council on Foreign Relations and George Clooney and Angelina Jolie and all those folks that, that we've mentioned here time and time again, that gets to the media monarchy kind of heart, I, I would say. Speaking of the media monarchy kingdom, this kind of brings together two of my sites in a strange way, Food World Order and Cyberspace War, as the IBM supercomputer Watson now has his very own food truck. Watson serving up dishes from a food truck as part of a new partnership with the Institute of Culinary Education in New York. The supercomputer made its debut as a chef at a Las Vegas tech conference last week, and so far has produced gourmet fusion fare like Swiss Thai asparagus quiche. So, of course, Watson, named after IBM founder and eugenics-obsessed busy man, Thomas J. Watson, the supercomputer comes up with creative meals based on a series of algorithms. And it's interesting, James, why IBM is doing this, because they hope it'll become a lucrative revenue stream as their company's sales have dropped for seven straight quarters and their stock price has also dropped. Interestingly enough, this food truck will be in action at the just about to start South by Southwest convention in Austin, Texas this weekend. And that would be the same place who had homeless people as Wi-Fi hotspots in, in 2012. James, South by Southwest used to basically be an indie music culture kind of thing, but like everything selling out is the new keeping it real, and it's got to be some big, gigantic corporate horror thing. Yes, yes. as always. All right. Well, um, on the Watson story, what yeah. a bizarre story. I mean, what a what a bizarre gimmick. And of course, this is just a gimmick as if they really want to sell Watson computers to be chefs or, or whatever. I mean, it's just it's just a complete gimmick. But it is interesting to watch the propaganda ratchet up for the coming transhumanist society. Oh, don't worry, your computer overlords. They're they're all soft and cuddly and they're good chefs. Um, again, just a bizarre angle. But I guess they have to keep it bizarre to keep people off kilter and keep them um, sort of interested in the in the whole propaganda tra trajectory. But am I the only one who, who looks at Watson? And on Jeopardy or whatever, and is instantly reminded of Hal from uh, from 2001. I mean, it is just so creepy the, the the pure voice that he speaks in. It is so it is so wonderful. I will be your new overlord, James. Please accept me. It's uh, I don't know. I just get creeped out when I watch that. But apparently, some people are just itching to upload their consciousness to the machines, and uh, one day it will be here. So you'll have your wish. 
Well, let's up the creep factor with a couple of related to that story as Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook is interested in acquiring Titan Aerospace for $60 million. That would be Facebook busting out solar-powered drones so that they could deliver Internet all around the world. And we'll also include, in case, again, folks missed it, Netflix did a satirical video about a new drone-to-home service where they'll deliver you DVDs via drone, making fun of Amazon's going to deliver you packages with drones story. James, any, any word on either of those? Uh, I just want to say you did up the creep factor there. You're sending shivers of creepiness down my spine. So there you go. So in, in an effort to, to bring this episode to a close, because there's always so very much news, and again, we'll always implore folks to use hashtag New World Next Week on Twitter to share stories and to get these things moving, and you'll see them, and James will see them, and we'll all be able to kind of get this discussion going throughout the week, both before and after these episodes. I just want to make a quick mention of a couple of updates to stories we've covered recently on New World Next Week. Bitcoin firm First Meta CEO found dead in a suspected suicide following the rash of bankster deaths. Kroger and Safeway say no to GMO salmon. That follows and updates, James, the Frankenfish story we've been following for a while. And also, I think a lot of the big corporate food places seeing the writing on the wall, whether it was Kraft and Chick-fil-A and Subway that we reported on a few weeks ago removing chemicals from their food. The only other thing, James, I'll mention is I think the both of us were on Deadline Live with our good friend Jack Blood this week, so maybe we'll include links to those as well. Other than that, that's all I have for you this week. Well, that is a mouthful and a half. We've covered an awful lot, so thank you again for this. I'm looking forward to doing it again next week. Thanks so much, man. Take care. <laughs>